You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. I myself, when I was 19, started writing stories about robots, realistic robots, and nowadays the robots they're beginning to build are like the very first ones I described. Legendary science fiction author Isaac Asimov. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Ask any serious fan of science fiction who the three most influential authors in that genre of the 20th century were, and they'll probably say Arthur C. Clarke, Robert Heinlein, and Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov wrote or edited over 500 books. Now, even though he was best known for his science fiction, many of those books were mysteries or fantasy or even nonfiction. I met him in 1988 when he published a book called Prelude to Foundation which was the latest in that popular series. So here now from 1988, the great Isaac Asimov. How much of the Foundation series is it necessary to be familiar with to fully enjoy Prelude to Foundation? Uh, None. I write the book with a full realization that someone may pick it up or hasn't read any of the others, and it would be cutting my own throat to make it illegible to those people so that I carefully tell everyone what they have to know. And uh, they can get the book without any difficulty. It stands alone very nicely, I think. (laughs) I think so, too, but I'm prejudiced. (laughs) Is it hard, though, to write a book about a topic that you're familiar with, that you've been familiar with for all these years, knowing that you have to write it for for the three or four or five people in the country who may not have read the series? Well... You know, back 40 years ago, I actually did have trouble in that respect. But like everything else, as you go on, you learn how to do things. And now I can do it without undue trouble. I'm used to it. How has, as a genre, how has science fiction become more sophisticated since you first entered the field? Well, for one thing, it's gathered in a great many, a great many new writers Uh, When I started, I would suggest that there may have been anywhere from 25 to 50 people who uh, wrote science fiction as their chief literary output. Uh, Nowadays, there are literally hundreds of them. And where we used to have five or ten top-notchers, we now have 50 to 70 top-notchers. And then, too, uh, the field has matured. When I was young, it was a branch of pulp fiction, and the accent was on adventure. Uh, The writing tended to be rather stiff and uh, almost amateurish. Now we have people in who can handle uh, literature, whose styles are experimental, who aren't afraid to tackle all sorts of unusual things. The, uh, The field has grown up. Don't you find that a lot of amateur or would-be science fiction writers figure that they'll find a device, some sort of a secret ray gun or something, and build the story around that, not realizing that you must build a story around the story? Well, you have to be able to write. And I've, I've had any number of people who write to me and say, I have this great idea for a science fiction story. I'll tell you about it, and you write it, and we'll split 50-50. To which my answer invariably is, I have a better idea. I'll give you an idea, and you write it, and we split (laughs) (laughs) 50-50. I I was just curious. How does one arrive at 
proper names for a civilization in the year 12,020. I gave that some thought over a period of years, really, and I finally decided that I would have two criteria for the names I would use. First, they would have to be easy to pronounce. Yeah, I never could really cotton to the notion of having an unpronounceable set of letters because people would just blip over it. And secondly, I would like to have it not too easily recognizable as a particular ethnic group, not if we're going to be thousands of years in the future. And I got that, I think, from Maxwell Grant's old Shadow magazine. He wrote stories about the Shadow, and he had names which were easy to pronounce but unusual. And he once told me that was to avoid having trouble for invasion of privacies. He tried to choose names that weren't going to be of real people. And I thought that was a good notion, so that uh, sometimes I simply misspell. My chief character is Harry Selden. I spelled it H-A-R-I. My uh, chief female character is Doris Venaboli. I took Doris and left out the I. Uh, That works sometimes. (laughs) It's scarcely something you could flip open the phone book and choose a few names for. (laughs) No, it isn't. On the other hand, if I write stories that are set in the reasonably near future, then I do have to use names that are uh, familiar, or at least that sound like real names. And then I do try to use a variety of ethnic groups so we we don't have only John Andersons and things like that. Do science fiction writers as a group, including yourself, have a, have a special insight into the future? No, I don't think so. As a matter of fact, our record for prediction is very poor. The only thing is that everyone else's record is, uh, everyone else's record is even worse. <laughs> but you see, if we're going to write about the future and do our best to make it sound realistic, then we're bound every once in a while to hit on something that actually happens or will happen. Uh, or sounds uh, familiar. Uh, Heinlein, who died about two weeks ago, was very good at that. Back in 1940, he wrote a story called Solution Unsatisfactory, in which he described the equivalent of the Manhattan Project, the development of a nuclear weapon, and uh, the existence of the nuclear stalemate after the war. And this was before Manhattan Project had gotten started. Uh, I myself, when I was 19, started writing stories about robots, uh, realistic robots, and nowadays the robots they're beginning to build are like the very first ones I described, and I get a lot of credit for that, which I'm not sure I deserve, but I wish I take, Uh, so that uh, I, I, I talked about pocket computers long before they came out. (laughs) <laughs> surprised me when they came out. I wrote a book about the slide rule that came out just as the pocket computers came out. <laughs> and I described a one of the space uh, the spacewalk when you get out of the spaceship with a tether uh, about 15 years before it really happened, and so on. But uh, these are relatively easy things to do. Are there perhaps technologists who would know how to implement an idea if they could just get the idea, and then they read science fiction to get the idea, and they say, yeah, that's a good... I had heard somewhere that the Star Trek series, where they had the little device mm-hmm. that they wave over you, now there are doctors who will... who who They're developing something along those lines. Well, back in 1945, Arthur C. Clarke wrote an article about communication satellites, which was 
very knowledgeable, and uh, what we have now is precisely what he described in '45. He likes to say, if he'd only thought of patenting it, he'd be a trillionaire now. <laughs> <laughs> you have, correct me if I'm wrong, 370 books? Actually, it's now 390. It keeps going up. <laughs> That's right. I was looking at last week's figures. <laughs> After this short break, yes, even Isaac Asimov got rejected from time to time. How did he deal with it? Now back to my 1988 interview with Isaac Asimov. I think there are a lot of people who must assume that whatever comes out of your word processor is publishable. How do you know when you've turned something out if it is publishable or if it is likely to be rejected? I don't know. Uh, every once in a while I do get a rejection. And I can never tell in advance whether it's going to be rejected or not. Uh, fortunately, when it is rejected, it's never rejected on the grounds of bad writing. That would really be devastating. But it's rejected on the ground that this is not exactly what they had in mind. Or I write a detective story, a mystery story, and the editor thinks that the mystery doesn't have a fair chance of being guessed by the readers. You know, my mysteries are puzzle stories, and you have to give the reader a fair chance. And if they get a little too esoteric, they say that's not fair. Things like that. But uh, I can't really tell. And every time I send something out, there's always a certain amount of, uh, oh, what shall I say, tension until I find out it's taken. And it's more fun that way. If I ever get to the point where I become blasé about it, a lot of the fun will be gone. When you speak to young writers, do you find that their eyes widen when you tell them that you still get rejections? They're always surprised, yes. But uh, as a matter of fact, I got one yesterday. Uh, uh, there's a mystery story I wrote which I failed to sell twice. And I sent it off to a third market, and I called up uh, just before I came here to Washington. And they said they were sorry it's not what they had in mind. So I said, okay, send it back. But, uh, you know, what I do tell writers is that being a professional writer is largely an exercise in disappointment and frustration. And uh, you have to have a thick skin for that. And you can't too soon decide you're going to make your living entirely by writing because that's a passport to starvation. Uh, I always tell them, figure out some other way of making money until you're really making money writing. I was something else. I managed to get a job as a faculty of Boston University School of Medicine. In fact, I'm still professor of biochemistry, though I no longer work at it. But it wasn't until I'd been writing for 20 years that I really felt it was safe for me to depend on writing alone as a source of livelihood. Mm. Is the best advice for a young writer to do what you do, and that is just write, write, write? Well, it's the only way you can learn how. You can attend courses, you can read books, but uh, nothing will really give you the feel of writing except writing. You've got to witness. You've got to feel with your mind and fingers uh, the way a story builds itself or the way it crumbles to pieces uh, before you really know how. All the listening to other people isn't going to do you any good. Uh, and, of course, it's possible that you may write, write, write and never be able to do anything much because somehow you lack that indefinable something we call talent. It's possible. As I always say, 
if you can't, if it turns out you can't write, you might have to be satisfied with second best and become chief justice of the Supreme Court, for instance. <laughs> but, uh, Is the the potential audience for science fiction widening? Will this book have a uh, a, a better chance of, of commercial success than other books that you've written? Oh well, th- the situation in the 1980s is so different from what it was before. Uh, when I wrote my earlier novels in the 50s and in the 60s, uh, I never expected them to be bestsellers. It would have been ridiculous to suppose so. No science fiction writer had a bestseller. If I sold, say, 10,000 copies, I was happy. The situation is different in the 1980s, partly because the world has become so science fiction in real, real life, Partly because uh, so many people are writing so much better science fiction and partly because uh, uh, the movies has just created so much higher expectations of science fiction. So that, uh, in 1982, when I published Foundation's Edge, it was my 262nd book and my first bestseller. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I I had had 261 books without coming anywhere near the bestseller list. I thought that my aim was unerring, you know, that I could, I could close my eyes in this. Uh, and here, all of a sudden, uh, I had a bestseller. And since then, I've had several more. And uh, this is going to be a bestseller, too, as a matter of fact. Uh, it's The publication date was May 20th. And on May 22nd, it appeared in 13th place in the New York Times bestseller list. And I presume it will stay there for a while. See, when you talk about the success of the movies, did it, did it, did it make you in any way jealous when in 70, uh, 70, 78, when Star Wars came out and immediately zoomed to the top of the all-time highest grossing movie? And here you've had the Foundation series of stories and books out since, what, the early 50s? And people are, uh, and, and you, you, say, you say you sell 10,000 copies, you feel lucky. What kind of justice is there? Oh, well, it's, it's a different medium, and they invest a great deal more money. I mean, the amount of money I invest in one of my books is minuscule, whereas they invest millions, tens of millions of dollars there, and, and they risk losing it, you see? Uh, if, my book, if my book doesn't sell very well, I don't lose much. They stand to lose their shirts. So you have to look at both sides of it. You can't blame a person for making a lot of money if he risks a lot of money. Uh, of course, there was a great deal in the Star Wars series. There were galactic empires there that were reminiscent of my books. But uh, I don't object to that. You, you, can't, you can't put a fix on every last word you've written. After all, I got my idea of the Foundation novels by reading Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and if I feel that I can borrow part of the... So can someone else. When you write something, a great deal of it enters the common realm of human knowledge and experience. And uh, in science fiction, there are a great many uh, science fictional ideas that have been popularized by one author or another, and other authors make use of them too. There isn't a person who writes robot stories, for instance, who doesn't borrow from me, especially my laws of robotics. And I consider that a uh, a flattery rather than anything else. I wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, And uh, I myself, for instance, when I wrote Caves of Steel, I had moving sidewalks all over the place, uh, and I got that from my a story by Robert Heinlein called The Roads Must Roll. And uh, I'm not going to be 
I'm not going to have a double standard. I mean, I can borrow it, but nobody else must. Let's all <laughs> borrow. It enriches the entire field. I'm running out of time. Is there one question that you are asked everywhere by everyone that you wish you could answer just one more time and then never have to deal with again? Yes, that's the question. How do you manage to write so much? <laughs> and the answer is, it's all I really like to do. And when you, you're good at something and you do it all the time, you do a lot of it. And that's all there is to it. Isaac Asimov died in 1992. He was 72. And you can find easy Amazon links to some of Isaac Asimov's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you'll also hear my interview with another popular purveyor of science fiction, my 1991 interview with the author of Jurassic Park, Michael Crichton. Some characters I'm very eager to get killed off, and I, and I enjoy their deaths <laughs> a lot. You know, um, and, and from time to time, you'll kill somebody, and then you'll read it later, and you think, no, it wasn't bad enough. And you go, <laughs> go back and give them a worse death. And my interview with someone else who may not have been an author of science fiction, but was certainly at the center of one of the most popular science fiction franchises of the 20th century, my interview with Leonard Nimoy. Where did the one arched eyebrow come from? Actually, it was a natural response to a moment. Uh, something said to me by someone, either McCoy or Kirk or someone, that was my natural response. It was something that I didn't realize that I had learned to do myself over time and then realized when I saw it and when people commented on it that I had found a small gesture which played against their rather impassive face, made a very large comment. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the woman who started singing publicly at age 8 turned it into a career when she was in her 20s and has never looked back. My 1990 interview with singer, songwriter, actress, Holly Near. The folk music of protest, as well as celebrating a positive thing, has always existed, will always exist. It doesn't matter whether Top 40 decides to play it or not. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. 